Hey guys, John Paulamy here, Actionable Intelligence. Today is Saturday, August 28th, and this is the weekly market update. So the first thing I wanted to go over was this reminder from Benjamin Graham, value investor extraordinaire. The margin of safety is always dependent on the price paid. And I've talked about this in a couple couple of uh, videos recently, one specifically on overvaluation and different metrics that are used to measure it. And that the historical narrative is that if you overpay for stocks, your forward returns have a tendency to be uh, below average. And so why am I talking about this again? Well, I was writing the current newsletter for the subscribers in for the September issue of the Actionable Intelligence Alert newsletter. And in reviewing a couple of the companies, I was struck by the fact that they, even though their performance had been fairly good this year, they still were trading extremely well below their net asset value. And one of both of the companies are companies that are focused in upcoming emerging markets outside the US. And so they already had relatively low valuations. Now, these particular companies have unique business models that allow them to take advantage of the growth that's happening and unique situations that are particular to each company. But it, it just reminded me, like, I think one of the companies was selling at a 53% discount to its net asset value, and its net asset value had grown 22% this year. So that's the kind of situations you're looking for, right? That's something I like to buy. If I can buy 50 cents for a dollar or a dollar for 50 cents, I'm sorry, or 53 cents. And that dollar is getting turned into a dollar 25 while I'm buying it at a discount. It's great. Uh, the management of that company recognizes the historic undervaluation and is buying back shares. The other company is kind of a weird uh, deal, but it has a uh, very dynamic and shareholder focused management team. It has been able to generate tremendous amounts of investment returns, and it has been buying back a tremendous amount of stock. That's another company that I believe its net asset value is around $1.20, and it's selling for around $0.80. Cents. So you're getting about a 30% discount to net asset value with a tremendous amount of share buybacks and a new business that's coming online that looks promising. So those are the types of things that, you know, we just don't do resource speculations in the actionable intelligence alert newsletter. Um, I'm looking to diversify out of overvalued situations. And at some point, we're going to have to sell these resource companies, these commodity stocks. They will get to, they're not buy and hold investments. They are cyclical investments or speculations. And uh, we've done very well in them, but we have to look for places to recycle the cash. And I'm looking for places that, you know, have been undervalued. And emerging markets have been undervalued for a decade now. And as I've pointed out in a previous video, we a lot of times we'll see big, big moves and switches in overvaluation and undervaluation between the US and emerging markets. Typically, when emerging markets are outperforming, the US is underperforming. So with historic valuations in the US, and his not necessarily historic undervaluations in emerging markets, but very relative to the US for the S&P, emerging markets are like, if not at all time lows close to. So that's 
the, that's what I'm looking at. So if you have an interest in that, um, you may want to take a subscription to the newsletter. Uh, the, the pick for September um, is also another undervalued situation. It's a unique way to play the uh, dynamic economic growth that's happening in India that keeps you kind of away from the overvalued U, uh, Indian stock market to a certain extent, but allows you to invest along with uh, a, billion, a Canadian billionaire who has, uh, is of Indian descent and has set up a very interesting vehicle to take part in what I look at as possibly the doubling of the Indian middle class over the next 10 years. So if you have an interest in that, you can you know go to a Patreon site, a $5 uh, support of uh, becoming a Patreon will get you a copy of, the, um, of that when it comes out in September, uh, you have to wait till September. But uh, if you are interested in undervalued, undervalued situations that uh, give you this margin of safety, when I think that we have these overvalued markets, um, you, something you may be interested in. So that's a short plug for the newsletter, but uh, that's what we're doing in the newsletter currently. I just wanted to update people if they were interested. So I keep putting these things together when I find them about the historic overvaluation that we're currently seeing. And this is just another metric. It's uh, the S&P 500 versus real earnings yield. You will note that uh, when the real earnings yield approached zero or got below zero, it pretty much coincided with uh, stock market corrections that happened that were pretty decent. Um, we are now in a situation where we are below the historic norms. I would suggest that I'm not sure if this data takes into consideration the pandemic um, economic decline. I mean, that's really exacerbated things, but nevertheless, um, I don't know if this has been recalibrated for the bounce back that we've seen in the economy in the $8 trillion of printed money. I will tell you though, that this is just another metric of how overvalued things are. And uh, now we have, you know, Mr. Powell at Jackson Hole virtual conference kind of didn't seem to, he, he, the market liked what he said vis-a-vis -vis the taper yesterday, but it's inevitable at some point, you have a lot of Fed governors out there saying that uh, the taper has to begin at some point, start tapering the bond purchases, which leads us down the path to an eventual interest rate hike. I'm not, with markets elevated so high and so overvalued, I'm wondering if this may be the catalyst that causes a significant correction or maybe a bear market. I don't know if the future's unknowable, but it's definitely a risk, right? They're talking about this stuff and it's, it's not something that's been, you know, we knew it was coming, but maybe it gets priced in. Maybe people look past it. I don't know, but we're in very um, choppy water, if you will. And again, I, you know, the analogy has been used and metaphor that people have heard, whatever, however you want to call it you know, picking up dimes in front of a steamroller. If you trip and fall, you're going to get run over. And how much more upside is there? As I've said before, though, and I just said it before, and I'll say it again, the future is unknowable. It's very, even at these historic overvaluations, it doesn't mean things can get more overvalued. But you are really, you better get moved close to the door because the music is eventually going to stop and you don't want to be, you want to get out before the crowd. So something to be cognizant of. So this was an interesting chart. So the best performing um, 
sector in the S&P this year has been the S&P 500 energy uh, portion of the index up so far 44.5% to this time so far. Well, at least through June, this is an older chart, sorry. Um, but even now, we've even last week, we had a big rally. You know, we had this through the summer, people were getting concerned even in the newsletter. You know, we had a big run in a lot of the resource stocks. I mean, we've made a tremendous amount of money. But in the last couple of months, we've had a pullback, you know, from the last time the Fed opened their mouth and they started talking about maybe moving things forward, uh, but didn't actually do anything. I mean, we were poised for a correction. And, you know, we've subsequently recaptured or we've re-rallied. So I don't know if it's just a bounce and we're going to continue down in the resource sector or if we're going to see um, continued strength <clears throat> into the end of the year. It's very possible. But what I'm seeing in the energy sector is interesting. The returns in a lot of the companies that we've been invested in or talk about have been tremendous or been outperforming the market, but still generalist investors hate the energy sector. When I talk about the energy sector, I'm not talking about renewables. I'm talking about oil and gas, coal, nuclear, things like that. And they've performed very nicely, but the generalist investor still has not returned. So I call that, you know, climbing a wall of worry. Uh, at some point, you know, with these cash flow yields, with some of these companies being in the high 20% range, or even higher for some companies, there's really some unique situations out there and companies generating tremendous amounts of cash. Um, at some point, the generalist investor has to come back in my view. Um, it's just, you're, you're gonna underperform if you don't have a um, positions in these. So we're climbing that wall of worry. I think that uh, energy will continue to outperform as I said, and I'll talk about in some subsequent slides. I think we're, continuing to head towards that energy crisis and higher energy prices in our, in our relatively close future, you know, 18 months out or so. So um, yeah, just wanted to point this out. And uh, here's the, uh, here's something interesting. A lot of these charts came through. I had them and some reason they just data dumped. They were like held up. I, I forward things to my email and all of a sudden, a lot of these, so a lot of these may be a couple couple months old, but I still think they're relevant because they're still apropos. And this is a OECD crude oil stocks. Uh, this is a you know organization of economic cooperation and development, which is basically your you know developed countries, Europe, the United States, Canada, that stuff. And you can see, you know, our oil inventories worldwide. I mean, here's your five year average. Here's where we are in 2021, and we've actually went down even further. We are in deficit situation as we speak right now. And we, this is in the context of the so-called um, variant that's going around, which has caused, uh, caused certain countries not to be able to open back up fully and still constricted economic uh, activity. And so what, ask yourself what happens, you know, if you look at worldometer data, which is what I, I just use, it's convenient you have the ability to throw up a seven day rolling average. You can take a look at uh, the world as a whole, various countries in the US, you can break it down to state levels. And you can see that, yes, we've had a lot of more cases. Um, deaths have not been as bad as the previous wave, but they appear, at least from the context 
um, of a lot of the debt I'm looking at, it's beginning to top out and roll over. And so, you know, even Bank of America, their commodity people came out with a note this week and said that uh, by mid-August should be definitely be apparent that this particular wave of this uh, sickness will have rolled over. So, um, of course, the market's going to anticipate this. It's not going to wait until the data comes in. And so I think that's what you're seeing. You know, you're seeing the more dovish comments from Powell uh, this week combined with the fact that what was holding, you know, holding things back a bit, I think, was this uh, um, uncertainty around how bad this particular wave would be of the um, pandemic. And uh, I think now that uh, the data seems to be indicating that it's rolling over. Uh, nobody, it's not good for, you know, uh, this is, people are very gun shy around this whole discussion. And so when we saw the rising cases, people immediately extrapolate, uh, you have to, you know, it's about risk management. So people start extrapolating worst case scenarios, but it looks like uh, things are rolling over and that, uh, you know, nothing's really changed on the supply or the supply dynamic. We're, I'm going to show that in some slides coming up. Um, are we prepared to go back to 100 million barrels of demand? And then as growth continues worldwide this year and into next year, you know, will we be able to supply the crude with the call that will happen on OPEC? Will they be able to meet the call? So um, B of A in their letter is expecting $80 uh, Brent this year, uh, which is only about nine or eight or nine bucks from where we are now. I think that's consistent with what Goldman said. I thought we would get 70 by the end of this year. We've already bumped up against that and then pulled back and now Brent's over 70 again. So we've met my target. I think we go higher into the end of the year. Personally, I don't know how high uh, 80 seems reasonable. 75, 80 seems reasonable. And the thing I like about it is I've been listening to a lot of conference calls of various, obviously constituents of the newsletter portfolio, uh, but other companies also. And, you know, $70 oil Brent does a real good trick for people's cash flows. I mean, I've got companies that have exploding cash flows. Okay. And um, if you think we're going to go higher, that, that just gets better. And um, so it's something to look at. If you don't have a position, uh, people have asked me, is it over? I don't think it's over. These things usually go in what, you know, they're cyclical type situations. Eventually the oil price will get high enough where enough drilling will come in and will overwhelm the demand. But I think we're a long way from that. As I said before, because of the ESG situation, because of the constraints being put on by this current administration on North American production, um, and the disincentive to just because of what we've seen around um, environmental, like I said, ESG, as, as our, our, our friend Harris Kupferman calls it, um, oh, what's he called ESG? I just forgot, I just lost my train of thought. Uh, oh, energy stops growing. So um, yeah, that's, it's funny, but it's actually true. So, uh, you know, I, I, I don't know if oil goes down, we're getting heading into the shoulder season as driving, you know, slows down. But as this delt, as this uh, current wave rolls over, we'll see as more economies open up and things begin to return to normal. You know, it's a new cycle, right? I mean, uh, it, it, it's the same thing like it happened in India. That's why I'm buying an Indian uh, company this month in the newsletter, because if you look at uh, what's going on there, um, yes, the economy got bombed out because of the 
you know, super bad news that we had over there a couple months ago, but things have really um, mellowed out. And so you will see, you will see thing, you know, humans are going to human, right? The longest trend in, in effect for mankind is mankind's ascent. So that goes from the lower left of the chart to the upper right. There will be ups and downs in that, but uh, you can be assured that people will have commerce. People will start moving projects forward and doing things that they want to do. And that all requires energy. So pursuant to the previous comments, um, here's a slide from Rystad. North America frack operations by month as of 18 August. And you can see even with the oil prices that we've seen or the rising oil prices, you see the depths of the pandemic uh, reduction in activity and then the gradual climb. But even with these prices at you know, close to $70 WTI, high 60s, they've been up there for a while now, you're not seeing a big you know, increase in frack operations. Now, is this because of activity levels? Is it because that companies are not drilling as much and um, don't have the need to frack as many wells? Is this part of the situation where you have the drilled but uncompleted wells are starting to, you know, we're starting to run out of those type of situations? Is it, is it like uh, Rose, uh, Goring and Rosenswag have suggested that a lot of the tier one uh, drilling locations have already been drilled out and there's really not a lot of choice places to drill even at these prices. And so you don't need as much many frack uh, operations. Uh, these are all questions that are reasonable to ask. Uh, I just point out the fact that, you know, during previous uh, times in the last decade, when we've seen an increase in the oil price, we've seen a consummate, uh, pretty, pretty sharp and quick rebound in drilling and fracking operations. And we just are not seeing that now kind of, kind of, you know, recovered from the um, basically crash back here in, in, the spring of 20 after the whole pandemic hit the United States, but then started climbing out of that. And we really, we really haven't been, you know, with, you know, I don't know if oil prices have to go a hundred, $120 a barrel, something will re-stimulate this because at some point uh, even second tier locations become profitable to drill. So another thing, another data point that seems to me to be bullish that you're not seeing the supply response at these prices. So I wanted to point this out. Uh, this is another article, um, and I'll put a link to it uh, where I call out articles. I'll try to put links to them in the show notes. So this is a Bloomberg article, the era of cheap gas is over. The era of cheap, cheap gas, natural gas is over, giving way to an age of far more costly energy that will create ripple effects across the global economy. Natural gas used to generate electricity and heat homes was abundant and cheap during much of the last decade amid a, amid a boom in supply from the US to Australia. This is exactly right. That came crashing to a halt this year as demand drastically outpaced new supply. European gas rates reached a record this week while deliveries of the liquefied, of the liquefied fuel to Asia are near all-time high, near an all-time high for this time of year. And you know, you're seeing gas in the U.S. like at $4.20 an MCF, where it was at two fifty dollars an MCF a few months ago. And that's been really great for unhedged uh, producers like Sandridge Energy. We've talked about that in the uh, free part of this uh, stock that's really performed well for us. 
uh, shout out to other folks um, um, that brought that to our attention. But that's what you want in this type of environment, right? You want to, you've got to be careful if you want to take advantage. And the reason I'm bringing this up, you know, there's going to be a lot of talk now about, you know, I think gas prices are going to go a lot higher. I think that this winter is going to be a little bit colder and arrive sooner. Not a little bit, I think a lot colder and going to arrive sooner than people think. I think that's going to put a tremendous amount of demand uh, uh, in on the uh, our inventories, which is a problem. And so I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility that you see $6 gas and a spike maybe if it, things get really nasty. And you don't want to be holding a gas producer that, Again, you know, these things, these types of situations in gas, they're not like long-term trends. A lot of the times they get spikes and then you get a big move in the share prices. Um, unless we go to some new, uh, new high of four or $5 just because supply. But, you know, I still believe in economics and if the price gets high enough, the supply response will come. Um, so we can't discount that. Nevertheless, I think the way to play this, if you think, gas prices, natural gas prices are going to be moving higher, even at these prices, you want to be looking at unhedged producers, because if you own a producer that has his gas hedge at 250 or 275 MCF, when gas prices are going for 425, or maybe five or six this winter, um, you're, you're leaving a lot of money on the table. So uh, I would caution if you are going to get involved in the um, in this and try to play it, that you stick with the unhedged producers. Now, the, the same thing applies on the downside. If you get you know a big move down in gas prices, they don't have any hedging in place. There's gonna be the price taker at that whatever price. So um, it's interesting to, to look at this. Uh, this particular article seems to think there's gonna be a new higher floor because of some of the things that are going on with supply and demand with gas. It's a good article to read. Um, you know, I, I'm not sure exactly where I think gas is going. I think it'll be higher over the winter, but I want to see if there's going to be a supply response if, um, you know, if prices get to five or six dollars in MCF and see if drilling explodes in the various gas basins. So there's a quote here also it says, um, and this is why I think this particular article seems to be moving towards the new higher floor. It says, uh, no matter how you look at it, gas will be the transition fuel for decades to come as major economies are committed to reach carbon emission targets. The price of gas is more likely to stay elevated over the medium term and to rise over the long term. Well, we'll have to see. Like I said, the future is unknowable. That case can be made. Um, but we would, like I said, we want to see what the supply response would be. Nevertheless, I think over the into the end of the year and into the part of the winter of 2022, I think that gas prices will be moving higher. So this is uh, something else I want to talk about. So this is a chart that uh, Contrarian 8888 put up. And this is basically the percentage of 2021 U.S. production by entitlement. Basically, you have all these different oil companies here, um, like Chevron and ConocoPhillips and Occidental and ExxonMobil, and what their percentage of U.S. production is. Um, at, as per the total. So like Chevron, the way I read this chart is that they're 7% of the total US production. And you see smaller companies out here. Um, obviously, your bigger companies have a bigger, you know, you see EOG resources here, one of the top shale players, um, supplies 5% of the US produced oil. So you got Shell, BP, all the big ones, Pioneer Natural Resources. Anyway, 
Um, so what's the point? The point is, is that, you know, two things that I think is happening in North America, or at least in the United States and the shale basins and oil production as a whole, um, the ESG movement, the ability for people to uh, influence these oil companies and try to get them to become carbon, whatever, neutral or friendly, uh, whatever the term is, to basically get away from their core uh, expertise and business model, which is the finding and production of oil and gas. And so how does that happen? Well, this is the passive fund ownership in each company. So you see that, you know, passive, I mean, like um, companies like these funds like BlackRock and, and ETFs and stuff like that, pension funds, kind of longer term passive investors. Well, what you had, like in the situation where Exxon, where you had uh, a smaller activist fund, if you will, that didn't really have the resources to buy enough Exxon stock and really affect an outcome is they riled up or got the backing of some of these other passive funds like BlackRock and BlackRock committed their shares to the effort. And you see that uh, you see some changes in the board of directors at Exxon and, you know, some, they were one of the last companies that was like trying to just hold to their, to their, uh, what their basis of their company was oil production. So they were actually trying to grow oil production. And so I think this is another brick in the wall of the strangulated supply that we're going to see over time as you have these passive investors pressuring these companies to basically don't produce any more oil, don't reinvest in uh, these assets that, that, that they think are going to go away. I mean, I don't understand why these investors just don't sell these companies and not hold the stock. But I'm not going to get into, you know, conspiracy or trying to speculate that, you know, BlackRock is, you know, taking the other side of the green, uh, you know, it's seven or $8 trillion under management. So they're taking the other side on renewables and then trying to force these um, uh, oil companies not to produce any more oil and gas. And that will ostensibly, you know, create uh, more demand for renewables. I, I'm not going to go there. Uh, I just think there's a lot of confused people in the world nowadays. And um, there's a lot of people that don't really understand uh, how a modern society works and what the inputs are into that society. And I think that they have views that are diametrically opposed to each other. And they will not realize that until they have to suffer some type of pain, uh, physical or mental trauma, that will financial trauma that will get them to have no other choice but to reverse their view. So as we await that, uh, our position is that uh, heads we win, tails we win more, and that oil and gas isn't going away for many decades. It's actually going to grow in demand. And if you constrain the supply, uh, when demand's growing, you're going to have a price rise. So this was another one of the news items that got data dumped that was stuck in my email and all of a sudden came out this week. There's like 20 emails that I, that's what I do. I go around and look for different things or all the reading that I do. And if I see something interesting, I'll take a link and email it to myself. And some of the stuff wasn't coming through. I did something with my email and all of a sudden data dumped all this stuff in one week. So this news is a little bit old. I'll put a link to the article, but it was talking about uh, 
a major hedge fund that was behind the Amazon MGM Holdings merger. Um, New York hedge fund Anchorage Capital Group has amassed a holding of a few million pounds of uranium. People familiar with the matter say in a bet that prices of the nuclear fuel will recover after a decade in the doldrums. It is buying and selling uranium alongside mining companies, specialist traders, and utility firms with nuclear power plants, turning the fund into a significant player in the market. And so this happened, this is what we talked about would happen. This is even before the Sprott thing uh, really became uh, in effect, which it is in effect now, and apparently is putting pressure on the spot market. I'm trying to get Justin Hewn on. He's been traveling. I'll try to get him on because he's I'd rather have him delve into these things. This is, he li lives and breathes the uranium market. And I have corresponded with him and he said, he'll come on. We just need to get him hooked up and get him on. But it's obvious, you know, you have a market that uh, we know is supply constrained. You're adding uh, this pressure on the uh, demand side where you have now this money coming in from the Sprott fund. And there's many other hedge funds besides this that can see this. They can look at the chart and see that uh, we're in an uptrend. And so I think you'll see more of this. You'll see more money come in. Um, I think that a lot of these companies, these hedge funds also take positions in the equities, probably some of the decent size equities. And then, you know, uh, this all comes together to buying pressure to force the price of uranium up. So I think we'll see more of this. Um, we'll try to get Justin on and get a real good download on the current uranium market. He hasn't been on for like a year and uh, what he thinks about the Sprott uh, uh, situation, which, I mean, I'm bullish on. I mean, I just took a cursory look at it. Uh, there's people that are smarter than me that are following it, and, you know, everybody seems to be quite bullish on it. I was reserving judgment because I wanted to see exactly what would happen. You know, I didn't want this to turn into another hype, 232 hype, where everybody was getting, you know, bullish on that, and nothing really happened. It was kind of a, kind of a big letdown. So um, this appears to be different. This appears to be real. Real money's coming into this uh, fund, into the uh, Sprott fund, and they're deploying it. And uh, I think we're starting to find out that there's not as much material out there as everyone thought. Uh, the terms seem to be that if you if Sprott if you sell something to Sprott, you have to deliver it, you know, fairly quickly. So uh, it doesn't lend itself to uh, you know a bunch of monkey business where okay, you buy it now and I'll go scrounge it up somewhere. Um, I think they have to take to take delivery within 30 or 45 days, something like that. So um, that was why the whole thing was designed to put pressure on the market. Um, they know what they're doing. And you know, maybe this is a catalyst to kick things in the gear. I think it'll be good to watch what happens after Labor Day when everybody comes back to work from, um, which is next week, comes back to work from the summer, the summer will be over, the vacations will be over. You know, do fuel buyers start looking at this? Do, does this start kickstarting some long-term contracts? It'll be something to keep an eye on, but that seems to be what some people are speculating on. And so finally, I just wanted to point this out. This is a shrinkflation. This was a pretty interesting, I think this is at Costco. Kirkland, I think it's Costco stuff. Um, I don't really have a Costco where I live. We just have Sam's Club, so I haven't noticed this, but I have noticed this with some other things. You know, I was had a juice bottle or something in my hands like this thing seems smaller than I compared it and in fact it was like shaved off like an ounce or an ounce and a half or something it was kind of wild but here you have um 30 rolls in 2020 about 30 rolls of to toilet paper with 425 sheets per roll and then um below it you have the 2021 version and you have 30 rolls you get the same amount of rolls but you only have 380 
sheets. And you can actually see that it's kind of seems the package seems a little smaller. Um, you can see that the rolls here seem to be, well, it's hard to see, but nevertheless, you're getting less toilet paper, probably for the same amount of money or, or more money, right? That's how that works. And so this is hard to get reported into the inflation number into the, I think, into the data gathering. I'm not sure that the data gathering that the government does to calculate CPI and things like that accounts for this type of um, dynamic. It may, I don't know enough about it, but I, it would seem difficult to be able to do that, um, to track it to that granular level. If you see like, well, there's, you're still getting 30 rolls of toilet paper. Yeah. But do you realize that you're getting actually less sheets of toilet paper? So you're actually getting less toilet paper for the same or more money. And I'm not sure that they can account for that granular level. They may, I mean, it's like Goss plan. They have all these little bureaucrats, I'm sure, sharpening their pencils every month, but um, uh, it very well could be that they're tracking it to that level. But I, I just thought this was another example. If you have any examples or something like this that you see, you know, let us know in the, um, in the, in the uh, comments, because I'm kind of curious about these things. This is a, a way to, again, boil the frog, if you will. Uh, you don't really see this coming. And next thing you know, you just think this is how big it is, right? This is what you get. So um, uh, it's kind of interesting. Um, it also says, another thing I noticed on here, on the upper package, it says two layers of softness is an absorbency, two-ply septic safe. And I don't see the two-ply on the bottom. So I wonder... I mean, I don't know that I'm not an expert on toilet paper. Uh, I don't really pay that much attention to it, but you know, that would be interesting to note either. Do they actually shave off the, one of the plies too, and give you this thin, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know. And then you're having to use more to get the same effect. If you will, I don't want to get too graphic here, but, uh, it's, it's an interesting exercise in to see how, uh, the continued uh, abuse and uh, rooking of the uh, American middle class. All right, guys, that's it for this week. Appreciate the um, appreciate the listening and the support. Uh, we will. I didn't put a disclosure in this week. I forgot to do that. I'm trying to get this out a little bit late, but. Um, if you are interested in the newsletter or like I said, the Patreon, hold off until September on the Patreon to like get the issue out because I think you have a real interest in this uh, way to take care, to take advantage of the dynamics in the Indian economy. Um, so that's it for this week, guys. And um, we will talk to you next week. Thank you. Oh, one thing. If you're interested in the um, reality check, I will put links to the pages on the alternative sites where I post those. They will not be up till tomorrow. Uh, that's These videos do take me some time. So I do this one on Saturday and I've uh, said that I will put those videos up on Sunday. Um, I'll actually put them up tonight, but they'll start up Sunday. And um, But I'll put links to the, ch the channel so you can access those if that's your desire. All right, guys. Thanks. And we'll talk to you next week.